Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in today because we have an important topic. It's something that a lot of K-12 school districts really don't know about, and we have somebody coming on to talk to us about indoor environmental quality. Um, Our guest today is Shannon Oliver, and he's actually the uh, Manager of Energy and Sustainability at the Adams 12 uh, School District in North Denver. And he's just recently completed a really cool project where students and teachers were involved in actually measuring and investigating the indoor environmental quality um, in their school district. And I'm so excited to have him share his story with you all. So welcome to Go Green Radio, Shannon. Glad to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited as well. Well, I'd like to begin by having you talk about your education and career background so we can kind of set the stage for the work that you're doing in the Adams 12 five-star schools. So talk to us about your degrees and the work that you did before you worked in a school district, because a lot of our listeners are really curious about the path that people take to find a quote-unquote green job. So kind of share that story with us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I began my kind of green career uh, with a degree, a Bachelor of Science degree from uh, Colorado State University, which is uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. And uh, the degree was in environmental health, which was uh, an area I had not really known about, you know, prior to kind of stumbling, stumbling into the program. And uh, it was a great program, really. It was a kind of a mix of, you know, chemistry and physical sciences and some statistics and epidemiology and just a a wide variety of subjects that really helped kind of clarify to me that there was an interesting and and for me passionate uh, kind of intersection of, you know, the environment and humans, um, you know, the impact we have on the environment and and, and the impact it in turn has on us, uh, you know, both negative and positive ways. Um, and it was a great program at CSU. I, I graduated, I think, with maybe 12 other individuals, you know, in my in my department, uh, which is pretty cool at a, at a larger a larger state university like that. So that was a, just a really good experience, and sort of set the stage for me to get my first kind of professional job, um, which was doing air quality and environmental regulatory compliance for uh, the oil and gas industry, which is is fairly prevalent here in Colorado. Um, and again, it was just a whole world I had never really been exposed to. Um, I learned a lot about the very, you know, technical and scientific process of, you know, producing energy and then moving energy and how energy is, is used and, you know, in turn, um, some of the impacts to the environment, you know, from, from that kind of commodity we have here in our society. Um, so it was a, it was a great experience. I learned a ton and, um, you know, kind of prior to, to wanting to, to get out of being that broke student that I was, I was used to <laughs> and, and paying off undergrad debt. I, I thought I better go get a master's degree or I'm going to get, you know, used to the paycheck, so to say. <laughs> so I got into a master of uh, public health program out at uh, Emory University, which is in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, again, a really phenomenal public health program. You know, they're, they're located directly next to the Centers for Disease Control, who are obviously uh, kind of front and center right now with this COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. And uh, so just really top, top-notch research happening there. 
and um, graduating from from there, you know, kind of during the recession. So I ended up, you know, back in oil and gas doing doing sort of this similar work I had done before. Uh, until I was able to uh, to get into the the job I have now, doing kind of more you know broad broad based kind of green work, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. And and how did you come to work as the manager of energy and sustainability at Adams Twelve School District in in there in North Denver? Yeah, yeah. So I um, actually, you know, having done my master's program and really wanting to kind of grow beyond just this environmental regulatory compliance work I was doing, um, I, I, you know, I started kind of looking around. How can I, how can I build out my resume and and, and make new new connections? Um, and so I actually got into the advanced leadership training program. Um, that's a one-year, uh, you know, kind of young professionals leadership program through the Regional Institute of Health and Environmental Leadership, uh, which is an organization here in the in the kind of mountain mountain west that brings individuals from you know environmental and health sciences fields together, you know, from Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, um, and it's it's a year-long kind of training and and, and uh, in-person you know exercises that that you do, and, and so it's just a really great way to grow professionally as well as, as make some of those connections with folks in other, you know, other fields outside the oil and gas industry I was, I was working in. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually met an individual who's, uh, he's now our, our chief operations officer from the school district and had a different role at the time, but uh, he, he kept trying to bring me into the school district as, as kind of the environmental regulatory guy. Um, but I was really trying to, you know, grow out of that. And then eventually the sustainability job opened up and, and I was, I was able to get it. That's awesome. Now, a lot of school districts do not have somebody in a position like that. I mean, um, and I have a feeling that, you know, with the budget cuts that are coming, um, even schools that might have been aspiring to hire someone to do these things may have some difficulty with that role. But talk to us about the day-to-day work that you do as an energy and sustainability manager in a school district. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, and it's, it's, um, it's, a, it is a unique role and, and, you know, hopefully, uh, districts can, can kind of find a justification for it. I think I like to say I, I pay for myself by, you mm-hmm. know, finding energy and water savings. Um, and certainly the sustainability piece is, is ever more important. But yeah, the day to day is, is, is very different. Um, you know, environmental health professionals like to say we're generalists, which typically we are. And, and that's what, one of the things I really love about my job, I get to, you know, I, I get one hour I could be out in a school, you know, having children dig through trash to, to help inform <laughs> them about recycling and composting and, um, you know, grossing them out and, and really having a, a good experience with them. And then, and then I might be, you know, talking to uh, one, of, one of the uh, individuals who reports to me as a water resource specialist role that we, I actually helped create focused entirely on, um, you know, water conservation, particularly with our kind of landscape, you know, in, in Colorado, it's fairly arid. So about 80 to 90% of our water usage, you know, goes out on our lawns and perhaps that's, that's wasteful in some regards. So we're trying to um, kind of change our practices around that. And, you know, the next hour I might be, you know, looking at our energy bills, seeing if we're, if we're saving, you know, saving money in the right places. So it's, it's different out hour to hour. Um, and this indoor environmental quality piece isn't really explicit in my job duties. It's kind of, you know, more my passion. So it's, it's pretty cool that I was able to kind of figure out how to piece it all together. Well, it really is. And I think that, you know, some of the things that you're talking about, the, what, that you're managing for a school district, are things that often do not get managed. 
Um, I work with school districts right, right. all over the country and utility bills come in to someone in accounts payable and they just pay them. Um, and there's just no analysis going on whatsoever about if the bill is even accurate. I mean, are we even checking our meters, let alone, uh, do we need to be spending this much money on water and waste and energy? So um, hats off to your school district and, and the others who have put someone in a position to manage uh, those functions, those very important functions of expenditures in a school district. And, and one of the things I want to underscore for, for our listeners who are not in K-12 school districts, the money that a school district uses to pay those utility bills are from a, a portion of the budget called the general fund. And that means mm-hmm. that if you save anything on your utilities, that money can be used for Anything else, salaries, computers, textbooks, you know, anything that a school district needs. So it's not like, uh, you know, it's restricted dollars where, well, you know, we couldn't do anything with the savings anyway. We could do anything with the savings. So being able to track that is incredibly important. So talk to us about the buildings in the Adams 12 five-star schools, because I know you have kind of a mix, and that's the case with so many of our K-3 through 12 school districts in the U.S. We have some new construction, some remodeling, and some, you know, quote-unquote legacy infrastructure, which is just another way to say kind of crummy old buildings uh, that don't perform well. So talk to us about what you've got in your school district. Yeah, certainly. And and, and you're spot on, uh, you know, with regard to the, the savings from, you know, energy expenditures or, or utilities in general. Um, and just kind of for a frame of reference for folks listening is, is we have about a $7.5 million dollar utility budget each year. Um, you know, electricity is kind of the largest portion of that, but that includes, um, you know, electricity, gas, water, and waste. So it's not a, it's not a small amount. And to have one kind of salary that helps manage that, I think is definitely justifiable. Um, you know, and as far as our buildings, so we, we have 60 buildings. Um, we're spread out, spread out across about 60, 60 square miles of kind of um, suburban, peri-urban area just north of Denver. Um, we're currently wrapping up construction on our 61st building, hoping to open in the fall, sort of dependent upon, you know, whether we'll not be back in normal, kind of quote-unquote normal operations. Um, so that'll bring us up to about four and a half million square feet of, uh, of, of building space. Um, obviously a mix of school buildings, support facilities, athletics facilities. And uh, as you mentioned, the age range, our oldest building was originally constructed in 1960, um, and our newest one, you know, is going to be done here in 2020. So certainly a, a widespread there. Probably some districts have even older, you know, than that. Um, and I would say about half have received a fairly major renovation or addition over the years, maybe even a couple, um, depending on, you know, the age of the building and, and the needs. So, so yeah, there's sort of, a, I guess you could say, a hodgepodge of, of you know, building um, quality and, and how it was designed and the sort of the, you know, the, the parlance of the time regarding, you know, daylighting or no daylighting and, and these different pieces that have kind of altered over the years. Um, and so, you know, generally, you know, we have mostly still uh, tubular fluorescent lighting, which, you know, can cause issues for some folks. And we're trying to move towards LED, but obviously, you know, capital expenditures are, are hard to come by even if there's a, you know, kind of a payback for, for that improvement from the energy savings. Um, mm-hmm. And then as far as our heating and cooling systems, you know, basically runs the gamut of, of what you might expect in a commercial building, 
um, kind of keeps our HVAC guys on their toes, you know, managing these, all these different kinds of systems with, uh, with different ages and, and different uh, needs, really, from, from building to building. So, um, that's yeah, that's kind of a quick snapshot of, of where we are. Certainly the bulk of our buildings are, you know, 20-plus years old. Um, mm-hmm. and so that, that adds, adds to that complexity. Well, and the thing that's crazy is that for some school districts that are, you know, that are listening right now, that sounds brand new. You know, we have schools that that I work with, you know, on the East Coast. And when you talk about legacy infrastructure, they're 100 years old, some of these school buildings. And so, you know, the challenges are tremendous. I'm working with Newark, New Jersey, and they have done amazing work on energy efficiency, um, even with some extremely old buildings. It's so impressive. That's a topic for another day. But we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we're going to talk to Shannon about um, so much more. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. And in case you've just tuned in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Shannon Oliver, and he is the Manager of Energy and Sustainability at Adams 12 School District in North Denver. He holds a Bachelor's of Science in Environmental Health and a Master of Public Health as well. And we're going to be talking about indoor air quality and environmental quality and its impact on children in a classroom and their ability to learn and their ability to to you know process information and we're going to get to that in just a moment. So 
Um, I know that in the mid-2000s, Shannon, your school district adopted standards from an organization I highly respect, the Collaborative for High Performance Schools, also known as CHIPS. Um, And for our listeners who might be unfamiliar with CHIPS, give us an overview of the kinds of concepts that are incorporated in CHIPS standards. And and you can focus on new construction or, or even whatever, you know, standards you like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, CHIPS, um, you know, as, as you mentioned, the Collaborative for High Performance Schools is an organization that kind of has three prongs, I guess you could say. Um, one is their sort of design standards um, that we'll talk about here. Another is um, a sort of recognition program. You know, some folks may be familiar with the LEED certification program. And, you know, CHIPS is, is definitely different, but it's, it's the same idea of, of, of saying, oh, this building meets a, a high, high caliber of operation. Um, and then the last piece is this operations report card piece that we'll talk about, talk about more later. But um, for the, as far as the design standards, really the idea is, um, you know, the, the organization's focused exclusively on schools, which is, which is great. They're a, a unique building type compared to, you know, some other commercial buildings you may, may come across. Um, and, it's, and it's focused also on sort of the operation, so not just, hey, let's design a, a low-energy building, a low-energy low use building, but let's, let's make sure, you know, four, five, ten years down the road, you know, that building is still being operated in a way to, to allow for that energy efficiency. And so certain things that they include um, are, are appropriate light levels, right? You want to make sure students can see and they're not being blinded and, and finding that nice balance of light levels in the classroom, um, you know, materials that are used in construction. So you don't want to have these, you know, cheap plastic veneers that will off-gas, you know, volatile organic compounds and things that can make people um, not have a very enjoyable experience inside. Um, even down to kind of waste management during construction, right, and, and designing the ventilation and how much fresh air is needed, um, you know, may be different, um, different for different schools uh, or different grade levels. And, um, you know, water use and, and kind of energy use as a whole is, are sort of some of the components that CHIPS tries to roll into to how they, how they kind of recommend a building is, is constructed. Well, and what I love about their standards is that it is focused on schools. I mean, there are a lot of different kinds of green building standards, but they're focused on schools and maybe even more importantly, uh, the people in those schools, the the people who work there, Mm -hmm. and of course, the children who learn there. And that's, you know, what I really want to want to emphasize and underscore that that is, I think that's one of my favorite parts of of working with chips is they are so focused on the research about you know how how a building can impact our learning and our cognitive ability so like a lot of k-12 school districts around the country your district needed to pursue a bond measure um, so you could address some of the existing buildings in your district so adams 12 Mm -hmm. took on the effort of setting environmental uh um, our indoor environmental quality EIQ, I'm sorry, IEQ baselines um, for every mm-hmm. school uh, in the district. And you used an operations report card protocol uh, that CHIPS had at the time. Talk to us about what's included in the IEQ measurements and why you thought it would help your bond measure efforts if you had that baseline for every school. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, we, you know, we, we had kind of struggled as a district, um, you know, prior to, uh, to winning this bond, which was a good outcome of, of this process. Um, and I think it had been about 14 years since we had been, you know, approved for, for bond funds. 
Um, and so we had a lot of deferred maintenance needs. Um, and, and really the approach started with our, our district architect who, who was familiar with chips and had, had co- incorporated those design standards we talked about. And, and she thought we need to, to clarify our needs to our community uh, in a way that makes sense. Right. And, and, and certainly obviously schools exist for, for children, for students. And so how to demonstrate, you know, the needs that we had and why we were asking for that money. So we, we, chose five of the kind of um, modules within the operations report card, uh, and those included indoor air quality, uh, light levels, acoustics, um, thermal comfort, and kind of energy efficiency as a whole. And really, you know, I think the, the key piece is the average individual oftentimes doesn't necessarily think of the indoor environment as, as having a potential to impact them in the same way we might all understand, you know, the outdoor environment can affect us with temperature and light and, you know, uh, weather and then various things. So we needed to kind of, again, show, show our community who weren't building scientists or environmental health specialists, uh, an easily interpretable kind of metric. And we sort of uh, settled into this, you know, red, yellow, green, like a stoplight kind of, categorization of, of our buildings so we could go to them and say, you know, for school A, we're asking for this amount of money. You know, we know we have these things that are failing. And in particular, you know, maybe the thermal comfort is, is in the red or yellow re- region. So we, we need to update our HVAC system and we know it's going to cost this amount. Um, so please, you know, please help us fund that. And it was a really good model. I think it did, uh, in fact, um, really help us win that bond and it also really brought in, you know, the principals of, of each school and, and some of the, um, some of the staff, because we did surveys along with uh, objective measurements through the ORC and help them understand, Hey, you know, we want to improve your buildings, but you need to also tell us what's it like in that building, you know, on a day-to-day basis. Um, yeah, so I think it was I, a re- really well-rounded approach. I think it's a brilliant approach. I mean, it's the level of transparency that people require and expect when they're being asked to part with more of their hard-earned dollars. I think that's a brilliant approach. So uh, somewhere along the way, uh, Colorado State University heard about your project and wanted to get involved. Tell us more about what piqued their interest and the research that they wanted to conduct in conjunction with your project. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and so, you know, they had, uh, the Colorado State University had already kind of won this EPA grant we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, and they had actually started working with another school district in the region to sort of implement, implement this, this research. And it, it didn't, it wasn't going to work out for, uh, for a variety of reasons. And so they had learned about, um, us having completed this operations report card for out of 12 schools. And really their, their interest was, was twofold. One, it was this intersection of, you know, indoor environmental quality and student performance. You know, as we've, as we've kind of talked about there, there's some, you know, a fair amount of research out there around kind of worker productivity and, you know, the indoor environment and some of the, you know, the sick building stuff that have come out over the years. But, not as much of that has sort of been applied to the learning environment you know, for students. And so, you know, there's not that objective science to say, yes, you know, the, the value of making these, you know, improvements to buildings is, is this improvement to student learning. So they're really interested in trying to uh, bring more research to that, as well as this idea um, that's, that's kind of been growing recently in years of using, you know, the, the building as a teaching tool for students and, 
um, a lot of that kind of movement has happened within newer buildings, you know, these, these nice new, you know, green certified buildings, which is great and, and obviously should, should be happening. But, you know, as we've discussed, you know, the bulk of our buildings and many uh, school districts are existing. So, you know, can that existing building that maybe isn't, doesn't have all these kind of fancy green components, you know, is it still applicable as a teaching tool? And, and certainly the answer is yes. So we kind of wanted to try to clarify that and how and why, you know, you could go about doing that um, as a school district. Well, and I want to jump to that because you guys already have a project-based learning model. And so for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with PBL, give us an overview of what it entails and help us understand why this particular model of instruction was so instrumental to your project to measure IEQ in your school buildings. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and just, you know, full disclaimer, you know, for the listeners, I am not an educator by training or profession. So if I, mm-hmm. if I say, you know, things a little off, off, offbeat with that, you know, just, yeah, full disclaimer there. But so, yeah, mm-hmm. the, the PBL, the problem-based learning um, approach, you know, really at its core seeks to bring, you know, real-world problems to our students. And these could be in sort of any any topic area. It might be, you know, reintroducing wolves to Colorado or, you know, impact on, on the astronauts of being in space too long or, you know, do we have too much screen time as, as kids? Like there's a whole range of, of um, things that they've looked at, you know, through this, this PBL model. Um, and, the, and the pretty neat part about it is this kind of iterative and investigative process that the students go through. So, um, so they, they're, they're brought this real world problem. Um, we bring in, you know, industry experts, you know, of, of that kind of problem uh, to, to present the problem to the students. And then we say, all right, you know, go forth students you know, help us come up with an innovative solution to this problem. And, um, and there's kind of, uh, uh, they revisit that, right? They need to come up with, with one solution and it's like, okay, that's a nice idea, but, you know, it's going to be exorbitantly expensive. So perhaps not super realistic, you know, go back to the drawing board and try again. And then the mm-hmm. kind of final piece, uh, the, the way to wrap up the PBL is that the students then present their sort of final solution they've come up with you know, back to those industry experts um, with, to the point where they may, you know, those industry experts may even try to take that idea and, 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 and take it forward, which I think is really cool. Um, and so that, that, you know, that interaction of, of those, the real world, you know, people in, in their fields coming, talking to our students and the investigative approach is, um, is I think, really unique um, in, in, in PBL model. And it just seemed like a really great fit for CSU to, to bring this, you know, indoor environmental quality piece, you know, at that engagement level to our students. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's such authentic learning that takes place under that PBL model as well, because um, students, you know, we, we talk about Common Core and all the, the workplace skills that are taught within that model, but really, um, at the end of the day, so many jobs, regardless of the educational level involved, regardless of the location involved. At the end of the day, a lot of our work in the 21st century is exactly that, problem-based learning or problem-solving. And there are some 
skills that you can only learn by diving into the deep end of the pool mm-hmm. and assessing yeah. a problem and, and assessing the resources that you need to solve that problem. So I love that you guys already had that in place as an educational model. And when we come back from this commercial break, we're going to talk about how you deployed that model, who was involved, and exactly how you did it. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. We're talking with Shannon Oliver, and he has a great case study of how a K-12 school district can take um, a, a problem, indoor environmental quality, and put training and devices in the hands of students as young as third grade and measure uh, indoor air quality and, and factors that impact learning and uh, arm them with the tools they need and the resources they need to help the school district solve a real world problem. So we were talking about the problem-based learning model, the PBL model that you all use, and you used that to develop a learning plan for this project to measure your, your indoor environmental quality. You worked with the STEM coordinators and teachers and a model was created for integrating whole 
variety of content, handheld tools and external experts that could be deployed at grade levels from third grade to high school. And this sounds like so much work, Shannon. Tell us more about the process <laughs> for completing this learning plan, because I think a lot of our listeners are going to be really interested in replicating it. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it absolutely was a, a lot of work, um, you know, just, you know, not to deter anyone by any means. But, it, you know, I think that the collaborative approach, you know, of having the external partners as well as um, these, these, these teaching staff that are experts in how to kind of implement this, you know, is crucial. I, I certainly couldn't have, have done it alone. And I don't think any, anyone, you know, CSU or, or the teachers themselves it would have been tough, you know, so, so having that collaboration is, is definitely crucial. And, um, and really, you know, we, 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 it began as with just a workshop of our STEM, STEM coordinators and some of the teachers that had sort of identified, they knew they wanted to do some, some kind of environmental PBL in the next, uh, in the next year. And so, you know, CSU and myself came in and sat down with them and sort of said, hey, this is what CSU is doing as it relates to the research and how, how it works with what ABS-12 already done and kind of where we think it fits in this, in this PBL model. And really, they were, they were excited from the get-go. They thought, hey, this is going to be great. Yeah, we'll give these kids some handheld tools. We'll have these industry experts, which is a key component of the, you know, the problem-based learning model. And um, and so we kind of went from there, and, and we we a little bit cut you know cut the teachers loose, um, and said, all right, you you know you understand curriculum and then how to connect this to you know the science standards or, or whatever um, academic standards it might fit with. So you know you kind of go forth and then come back and let us know you know where you need our help. What what tools do you want? What resources do you need? When do you want people to come? You know come present or come speak. Um, which was nice. It was a little more organic on that side of it. So, so that a, you know, a high school science teacher, maybe they were just super interested in the indoor air quality and they just, that was all they wanted to look at. Right. Or, mm -hmm. um, you know, the fourth graders, you know, they, we have an energy unit already. So maybe that energy efficiency piece kind of fit well there. And so they were able to develop it a little bit differently to, to sort of meet, you know, their, their grade level and their, their content area that they were trying to kind of achieve. Mm -hmm. That's so smart. Um, instead of a one size fits all, let the professionals, let the educational professionals adapt the project to their to their curriculum. That's so smart. Now Absolutely, you talked about these yeah. hand yeah, uh, you talked about these handheld tools. Um, you know, tell us more about the tools that they used, how you acquired them, because I know those aren't free, um, and a little bit more about how the teachers and the students were trained to use them, because that's an important piece. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then that's where that EPA grant, you know, really helped out. Obviously, the, the money piece is, is tough in school districts. And so, uh, you know, we, the CSU actually purchased uh, this kind of library of, of handheld tools for us with, you know, with the EPA grant money. Um, and, and we get to keep those, which is great. So now, even after the fact, I'm able to, to kind of, you know, check those out as, as though they were a library item. Um, for, for other investigative, you know, projects at, at the schools. And, and um, so we were able to put, you know, uh, uh, indoor air quality uh, meters, light meters, acoustics meters, and uh, energy kind of tracking devices, you know, in the hands of our teachers and students. Um, but then, you know, obviously we needed to kind of train them uh, how, to, how to use those. Some of them I, I hadn't even used until they kind of showed up at my doorstep. Um, so we started with, you know, actually mostly kind of web conference and, and phone calls with, with the staff. Um, and again, if, if 
you know, one, one particular teacher was like, we're only going to use, you know, their quality piece. We would kind of just train them on that um, initially so they could get their, get their kind of hands dirty with it and make sure they understood how it worked. And then um, we sort of kicked off the whole, whole PBL as far as the, the student engagement, you know, where, with myself and, and some CSU staff coming in and, and sort of doing almost like the workshop we did, you know, at the beginning with the teachers of, you know, this is indoor environmental quality, you know, this is some of the science, this is why it's important. And so here's what you guys are going to try to do. Um, and, and still gave them kind of all of it, right? We talked about light levels. We talked about all the pieces and then they sort of were able to, again, pick and choose. Hey, let's, let's, I'm always cold in this classroom as a student. I want to look at the thermal comfort piece. Um, so again, it, it allowed them to kind of pick and choose, you know, from that suite of options um, that we were able to provide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how many students were involved in this project? It sounds like probably a lot. And and how did you choose the students? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and there was I think about four hundred students um, that you know directly participated in this this PBL work uh, in, in three different schools. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we we wanted to to fit it within this PBL model. And our we have. Uh, two K through eight STEM schools and then a STEM program at one of our high schools that do PBL, multiple PBLs each year and basically from kindergarten, you know, all the way through, um, through graduation high school. So they're very um, familiar with, with PBL and how to, how to kind of make them work. So that just seemed like the place to start. Um, our other schools, you know, do also do PBLs. They're just not kind of as frequent. Um, so yeah, we targeted those, those three programs. Um, and then actually at the high school, uh, because of just timing with some of the other uh, subject matter that the STEM, the STEM program was looking at, we, we ended up getting into the environmental science classes um, at the mm-hmm. high school, which kind of was a happy accident in a way. Um, that's a, an elective that it turns out a lot of the students taking that class are, are maybe, you know, not quite have enough credits or they need to get their GPA up to make sure they graduate. And so they're not necessarily, you know, particularly STEM-minded students. Um, and so really, I think really exposing them up to this uh, was, was a really good thing in those, you know, environmental science classes. For sure. So talk to us about the results. What did the students find when they investigated the IEQ of their schools? And then what kind of projects did they pursue in order to address the issues that they found? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and so that was one of the funnest things. I was I was there. Um, you know, for a number of, of the groups that were kind of first, you know, going out into the wild, so to speak, and using mm-hmm. these tools to, to look at their buildings. And a couple, you know, a couple of neat things came up pretty quick. Um, you know, at one of the, the K-8 STEM schools, there's a, a kind of a basement area where all of the classrooms are, are internal, you know, and they have, have no windows. Um, mm-hmm. And so there were students that, like, oh, man, I remember last year I, my classroom had windows. And, and now I don't, and, and the light levels are obviously different. I, I kind of don't like this classroom without the daylight, and it was really interesting to see them kind of recognize, you know, that it had impacted them in, in some way. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a, that was a pretty a quick one they latched onto, you know, with with the lighting levels. Um, and then, you know, thermal comfort is it's tough. Anyone in a school district will tell you you can't, you really just can't keep everyone happy just for a variety of reasons perception you know not not being the least of which yep. um so yeah again having having students that were like i am always cold in that classroom you know go around and, and taking temperatures and they actually started to see you know we have kind of uh, district standard uh, you know 68 to 75 is where we try to keep our, our classrooms and, and 
most of the time we're actually achieving that goal. And so that it again brought home that idea of how maybe it's just, you know, my own physiology. I run mm-hmm. cold and, and, you know, they're not going to be able to satisfy me necessarily. So I guess maybe I need to bring a sweater. Um, mm-hmm. And so that, you know, that was kind of cool to see. And then I think one of my favorite one, I believe it was a sixth grade class um, at, at one of the, the K-8s. Um, you know, they, they were doing indoor air quality um, and they were kind of finding again, hey, we're not really exceeding these CO2 levels very often. So, is, you know, is there a problem here? Well, what, how, how is it? How is the air quality outside? And they actually went, you know, exterior with, with the sampling devices and they kind of recognized during, you know, pick up and drop off. There was a lot of idling cars and there was really bad air quality. So they actually created a whole campaign. We were able to put up no idling signs. They developed a kind of a ride share um, kind of app that they used and, and tried to get folks to, to carpool together. So that was kind of cool. That's really cool. I mean, and I imagine, I can only guess, because I've seen this in a few different instances, where if the parents who were in those cars got that message from the school uh, to stop idling, that might not go over as well (laughs) as hearing that message from students who've actually measured the data and and they're the ones bringing the message. I mean, did you see? Absolutely, uh, yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) That that might be received a a bit more warmly (laughs) than from the principal. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. for you and the adults around you, what were some of the most important lessons that you learned from this project? Yeah, I think there was a handful of, of real good lessons learned. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of key one um, that actually caused maybe a little bit of struggle sort of midstream with, with the project was, as I've mentioned, a lot of the levels of, of what the students were finding were tended to kind of be in, you know, within the recommended range. You know, we weren't, you know, we didn't have too much CO2. The light, you know, the light levels were generally close to where they should be. And so, the students kind of were going back to the teachers and saying, hey, you know, this is a PBL. We're supposed to be investigating the problem, and, and we're, quote-unquote, not really finding the problem. And, and obviously the teachers, you know, aren't, um, you know, building scientists or, or, or you know, health specialists. So they, they kind of didn't know what to, how to guide, continue guiding the students through, through the, the process, you know, where the, where the foundation is, is supposed to be an authentic problem. And so I think, you know, a little bit we kind of maybe missed on – driving home that idea of perception um, because maybe, yeah, sure, the light levels are okay, but, like, how do you feel? Do you feel it's too bright or too dim? Mm -hmm. And so that was something that we all kind of talked about and and thought, we, you know, the next time we kind of do this, we could do it better. And I I think, you know, perhaps for school districts thinking about doing this, and, you know, my fellow facilities folks may not like me saying this, if they know they have a problem, you know, again, sort of like the idling situation, if you can get your students to go investigate it and say, hey, superintendent, our school has really bad lighting, like you need to fix it, here's the data. You know, that, that stimulates change, um, for sure. So that was, that was, that was a huge takeaway. Um, and then again, just the collaborative piece is, is, it made it way more authentic, you know, for everyone. CSU really got to understand, um, you know, how are our students, you know, uh, being active in a school. So it's not just oh, hey, we have their test scores and we have this environmental yes. data. Now let's see if there's exactly. a relationship. It just, it brought them, you know, into the classroom. And yeah, then I think I love probably that. the I most, think... in, in, oh yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, you know what? Go right ahead. Finish that, and then we'll go to commercial. Oh go no! Right ahead. The, probably the biggest take home was the the putting in the handheld tools. You know, almost every teacher mm-hmm. I talked to was like, the kids loved it. I mean, it made them actually like kind of pay attention. Uh, you know, to that 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 harder kind of science. Oh, yeah, science for piece. sure. So, Kinetic yeah. learning. You know, something in my hands. Yeah. we've got so much more that I want to talk about. So don't go away, folks. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be back right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you're with us today and so happy to have our guest, Shannon Oliver, talking about this awesome project that his K-12 school district embarked upon that involved students, teachers, data collection, like professional tools to measure environmental quality in schools and some of the tremendous projects that came out of the data that the students themselves collected. We talked right before the break, Shannon, about some of the most important lessons that the adults learned, but what's your sense of the impact that this project had on the students? Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think it was, um, I think it was kind of, uh, uh, there was a multitude of impact, I guess I would say. And, and really, you know, that kind of last point I made about the, the you know, putting the handheld tools in, in their hands, I, just so, so many of them, you know, I would watch them and, and they just really felt ownership, you know, in the, in that moment. So like perhaps they'd been at their school for three, four or five years and, and, had whatever perception about it that maybe it wasn't, you know, the best environment in, in one capacity or another. And and for them to feel that ownership of, I'm going to go look at this. I'm going to understand really wh- where, where the, you know, the indoor environment falls in this kind of range of, of where it should be. And then I may be able to then transform that in some way and change it, you know, for future students. Um, I think it's huge because also so much of the time I think, you know, they, 
are getting talked at and told what to do and, you know, structure this and, and it's necessary, but really that ownership was huge. Um, yeah. And then I think I, I kind of mentioned it earlier that the environmental science students at the high school level who were, who were not necessarily, you know, very STEM focused and then some of them maybe even kind of, kind of struggling, you know, in, in their high school career. Um, it just really brightened up. But, 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 you know, the teachers I worked with at the high school said that, you know, me coming in and CSU coming in as experts saying, yes, we use this science. Yes, it's, you know, important to understand um, was so much more impactful than, than hearing it from their teacher, right? Because the teacher is getting paid to tell them that they need to learn this stuff. But for us yeah. to say, hey, even like basic algebra, you're going to use it, I think really yeah. helped. Um, and then. Certainly, you know, certainly the, the um, one one group of fourth graders went up to CSU um, as a field trip and, and learned a lot of this, you know, from the CS3 research, CSU researchers and their labs. And a handful of them were like, I want to go to CSU and I want to do mm-hmm. science, right? And so that's obviously a huge, huge impact. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. I love that. You know, I, I read... Uh, some information that you had put together about this project recently. And you said that one of the primary outcomes of this work was bringing school-based staff and administrators in facilities and maintenance closer together in understanding each other's day-to-day needs and struggles. And that is something that is a big deal. That doesn't happen in every school district. So I'd love for you to give us some more details about that and what it looked like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I think you kind of you nailed it there. It doesn't it doesn't happen a lot, right? And and it's mm-hmm. I think the, the pieces we just don't cross paths on a day to day basis as you know facilities folks and as as teachers because we're doing different functions. And so it's not to say it's anyone's you know fault per se, but it can make it tough. I think as a, you know a school based person, you know that maybe again is is always feeling cold and thinking that they're just not being heard about about their feelings and and then on our side you know kind of all we hear is hey i'm cold and if you don't hear anything you kind of hope that everything's good to go right but it's hard you can't be in every building every day Um, and so i think really uh, understanding you know how our our school-based folks are using the school and the experiences they're having uh, you know, and, and things that are important to us, maybe they just aren't even noticing and the things that are important to them, perhaps we had never kind of heard about. Um, and I think it just, you know, it brought a, a whole level of understanding on both sides that you, you can't get unless you interact and have those authentic experiences together. So I think that was definitely a, a really important takeaway for us. Well, and once those bridges are built, once those relationships are made, there's there's no telling how those relationships could benefit the school district in the future. I mean, if you reach, you know, some kind of understanding around an issue like thermal comfort or even just waste management or, you know, all the different components and what, how these, these types of environmental um, and sustainability issues impact various stakeholders within a school district. um, You know, once you build those relationships, you can deploy those in so many different ways and on so many other projects. So I think that's a tremendous takeaway from a project like this. I want to ask you a personal question, Shannon, because, you know, again, a lot of our listeners, they're from all over the country. We have listeners around the world, and I want to say hi to all of them. I love getting your emails from from all over the place. Um, But when you are studying to earn your Bachelor of Science in Environmental Health or your Master's of public health. Did you ever imagine that you would work on a project like this? 
<laughs> no, no, not definitely not. It's uh, you know, I kind of pictured myself maybe in a lab or you know, in some village somewhere helping them get clean water, or perhaps at the EPA, you know, writing regulations. But uh, but no, I, I didn't really ever picture this. And to be able to, you know, I graduated CSU in 2006, and so you know, 14 years later to to get some some researchers, even some of the same folks, you know, I maybe didn't know them, but they were there, you know, when I was there you know, into the school and, and doing this work was so fulfilling really for me. Um, you know, it, it was actually a kind of a, a really, a really great thing came out of it. Um, the school district uh, gives out these strength in action awards. Uh, so there's five core strengths for our school district and they kind of pick an individual um, that sort of embodies that particular strength. And, and I was nominated uh, for and received it for collaboration, you know, for doing this work. And so, you know, I kind of started this this uh, this radio show off by saying this isn't really my job function, right? Mm-hmm. And, but to, to be able to take kind of my passion and and figure out how to fit it into this sort of utilities management role that I do, uh, and then also be recognized for it by those teachers was was just super you know, humbling and honoring. So, um, really, really great experience for sure. Well, and I think that it's it underscores such an important point that I think people are beginning to awaken to this, and and maybe maybe the pandemic that we're in right now will help us. But you know, for for so long, I mean, decades, when we talked about environmental protection, it was maybe uh, about protecting wildlife or the wilderness or picking up litter. It was something very external. Uh, it's it impacted human beings, but when we start thinking about the human health implications of environmental pollution or environmental degradation, that's when we get a lot of people's attention. And especially when we're talking about schools and we talk about all the things that you know kids are sitting in these classrooms, and you know we're all crossing our fingers that that day will come again soon. Um, but but air quality, thermal comfort, lighting, humidity, all those things can either help or hinder the whole reason they're there, which is to learn. And so having somebody with your background or having somebody with your passion for protecting human health involved in these environmental um you know, measurements. I just think that's so important. And I really hope that our listeners who are in K through 12 school districts are listening intently to this, because if we don't measure these data points, we have no idea if our schools are healthy Mm -hmm. places to learn. They might be pretty, they might be new, they might be energy efficient, but if they're so energy efficient that there's no ventilation in the classrooms, guess what? (laughs) That's not Mm -hmm. great. So, exactly. um, Yep. So some of our listeners are high school and college students, and I want to say hey to them because some of them are either my current or former interns. Um, And they're trying to figure out how they can incorporate sustainability and their passion for the environment into their career goals. In the minute that we have left, Left. What advice do you have for them, Shannon? Yeah, I would say three quick things. You know, first and foremost, I guess walk the walk, right? If you are mm-hmm. composting at home or you have solar panels on your roof, it's it's far more authentic to say I'm I'm doing this because I believe in it versus hey you should do this because I've heard it's good for the world. Um, so definitely, you know, walk the walk in any way you can. Um, secondly, if you're about to go into an education, um, you know, program or even partway through, really, really try to get some sort of international experience, whether it's study abroad or Mm -hmm. semester at sea, it just really opens your eyes 
to Definitely. to the successes we've had and maybe some of the failures we've had in, in our approach here in the U.S. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, you know, sustainability is everywhere. It's not just scientists. We need you know, folks that understand, you know, economics. We need social sciences. We need, well said. Um, yep. you know, people Absolutely. from every walk. To, you can incorporate, incorporate it into it. any career that you want to. Sustainability is all around us. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. This was an awesome show. And thanks to our listeners for joining as well. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then. Have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.